Hi everyone! Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Uncovering Indonesia. Hi everyone! Welcome to another episode of Uncovering Indonesia. Today it's a really special episode because not only do we have a very special guest with us today, but we will also be uncovering an important issue involving children in Indonesia. One of them being child trafficking and exploitation in Indonesia. Here in the country, it is estimated that 100,000 children and women are trafficked each year. 30% of sex workers are below the age of 18 and up to 70,000 Indonesian children are victims to sexual exploitation. I wanted to get to the root of the problem, learn about it, what are the causes, and what can we do to prevent this. And luckily, today we have a very special guest, Faye, who will discuss Hello. and tell us all about this. Hi, Faye. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Now, for you guys, I'm pretty sure you've heard of Faye, you've seen Faye and her work. <laughs> Um, feature. She's very amazing. But um, she is a human rights activist. She founded Ruma Fei, which is an organization which focuses on freeing Indonesian children from trafficking, exploitation, and abuse. So thank you so much, Fei, for agreeing to come on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here to talk with you and talk more about our work at Ruma Fei. Yeah, we're, we're really excited to have you. Um, you start, let's start things off. Um, can you give us a bit of an overview of what your organization does and what exactly you do? Yeah, so Rumafe is a nonprofit that works to eradicate child trafficking, exploitation, and abuse through three programs, which in Indonesian, it's TIGAPE, because alliteration is fun, PENCEGAHAN, PEMBEBASAN, DAN PEMULIHAN. In English, that translates to prevention, rescue, and recovery or rehabilitation, depending on the case. So Rumafe really was initially started with this prevention program in the sense that I started out wanting to do a peer-to-peer -peer education module, if you will, about children's rights, about child trafficking, just because I feel like you can't find the solution to a problem without engaging the vulnerable population. And as children, we were part of the vulnerable population, but I saw that because child trafficking and child prostitution was such a taboo subject, kids weren't being involved in these discussions. So that only made them more vulnerable, right, to being victims of trafficking. So Romafe really started with this, which is what is now our prevention program, in the sense that we just went down to the area, we facilitated knowledge. Um, soon that grew to having more real life steps, if you will, so that they could take in order to, you know, get those new opportunities that we were talking about. So we were doing scholarships, we were doing um, like skill workshops, skill building workshops and the likes. And from there, I don't, I'm not gonna lie, I'm not super sure how it happened uh, because we never really had a plan for Rumake to grow so big. But um, as we grew, we started to start more like peer-to-peer -peer education programs in other areas. And in 2016, we had the incredible, incredible opportunity to start a safe house, which is where our last two programs come in, which are rescue and rehabilitation or recovery. So in our rescue program, we work together with other 
organizations, with our other agencies, and even other activists as well, um, to find kids who have become victim to trafficking, exploitation, abuse. And from there, it moves on to our recovery rehabilitation program. We have a safe house, and there we can help them handle the case if it's a case that we feel like we can help in. So that means that we help legal aid, we facilitate access to healthcare services, and provide counseling as well as skill building and education as well. Um, yeah, that's about what Rumafe does and what we continue to develop right now and what we hope to do um, in the future, continue to do in the future. That's, that's amazing. I mean, I, um, what, what you're doing is really wonderful. I think you and Rumafe, um, like all the help that you do, all the contribution that you do, it's um, basically a gift to the society. So really, really happy to hear that. Um, but I think for our listeners who don't have a solid understanding of um, child trafficking, could you talk about what forms can it take? Yeah, so human trafficking is basically the use of forced fraud or coercion to obtain some sort of labor or either usually either labor, labor or commercial sex act. Mm -hmm. um, so that just kind of splits human trafficking into two main forms, which is sex labor and just um, hu you know human labor so um, it can go from unethical you know production chains within companies that human trafficking can be used in those cases mm -hmm. and on the other hand we also have cases of forced prostitution mm -hmm. um, in which usually women and children are being sold to you know to do sex acts um, in numerous countries around the world I think then you also kind of break it down to the difference between child trafficking and human trafficking. Human trafficking is, you know, the trafficking of anyone as described, as defined um, earlier. And child trafficking is just anyone under 18 who has been um, trafficked. Then we kind of just go in into the difference between trafficking and exploitation because those are two of the cases that Omafe handles. Trafficking involves movement, whereas exploitation is just it's not just, but it's the act of using power to systematically extract more value to someone than they than that um, than that is given to them, and so that can happen within a child's own home, for example. It can happen within a child's or a person's own community, and that wouldn't count as trafficking because there was no forced movement. Yeah, yeah, I see. So you help um, rescue and rehabilitate these children. Um, can you tell us about that? Like when you, when you start it or when you do it, what type of cases do you see? Um, what type of situations were they actually in when you found them? Like in general, I know you can't, you can't um, exactly talk about each case, but I think to give our listeners an idea, um, an image of how they were, the type of predicaments they are, maybe you can share that. Yeah, so Rumafe works together with other, again, other organizations to find these areas, so, um, these cases. So we usually don't go directly into the rescue process, right? We're not the ones who storm the um, apartment or the complex or the building but we do handle the cases straight from there usually or from the police station when the girls first come in or first are first brought in and you know like you, you mentioned earlier Dumafe doesn't talk about the um we don't talk about the things that we don't sorry 
Rumafe doesn't share the cases that we deal with at, um, or that we handle, but we do take what happens the most or the most frequent, you know, terrible, terrible things that the girls go through and stitch together um, a story or some kind of explanation because a lot of people, you know, they still don't really fully understand what child trafficking is and what, what constitutes as it, right? Mm -hmm. So what we see a lot of times, the predicament they're in is they're very much undernourished, um, malnourished, um, just because they didn't have access to the, the nutrition that they should. When we talk about child trafficking, a lot of people jump straight to the psychosocial effects, which are definitely one of the toughest things, but they also forget like really underlying issues such as malnutrition is really, really, it has a really big impact on the kid itself and her develop and her development. And so um, a lot of the kids with me, you know, there was, there were several girls who came in and they didn't know certain, you know, traditional Indonesian foods that, you know, every like, you know, like fried, fried catfish, which Mm -hmm. is something quite common, I would say, Um, especially, yeah, especially where these girls were from, they'd never heard of it. Um, and you know fried yeah it was it was just because a lot of these kids they're they're conditioned not to be allowed to want certain foods or to eat certain foods because they have to save money or because they have to owe the the, their perpetrators money if they eat and so um, first of all a lot of undernourishment we see a lot of them um, have been trafficked by their own family members and I know we can talk about this more later but um, a lot of them have been sold by their own parents or have been trafficked by, or have been exploited by their father. And then because of the effects of that um, experience, if you will, they ended up being trafficked by other people because they were vulnerable, because they were victims in the past as well. The last thing that I would say is quite, um, you know, relatively common is just, we see a lot of um, health issues and that ranges from, you know, sexually transmitted diseases to the effect of forced abortions, because some of them were, were pregnant in the past, quite young, and either their their um, handler forced them to abort it in a very unsanitary, unhygienic, unsafe manner, or they did it themselves. And there's a lot of reasons why one girl would do that, but most of the time it's because they can't bear the idea of you know birthing a child in this kind of environment. And so I think that exactly and so the healthcare, the healthcare issues that we deal with are quite extreme um and it does require a lot a lot of psychosocial support a lot of counseling and it's something that's tough but it's unfortunately quite quite common and we really have to we not necessarily get used to it but we have to be prepared for these kinds of cases because we deal with them um quite a lot and sorry i have to add one more um we a fourth thing that happens a lot that we see is once we rehabilitate the victim and this is more looking at the after really rather than the after the rehabilitation process rather than right after they were rescued is that a lot of them will face rejection from family members so rumafe does um you know counseling not just with the kids but with where they're going home to and you know within a couple weeks we can see whether or not a family is ready or prepared to have a girl back because sometimes they just, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions, preconceptions that people have surrounding uh, sexual assault, surrounding child trafficking. Yeah. And so sometimes they just do not want their daughters back. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. 
Um, and it's something that we really, really have to work together with a lot of different agencies with because then we have to find another home for our kids or we have to find um, temporary housing as well. But that those are kind of like the four things that happen quite frequently that we see a lot that a lot of people are unfortunately not aware of. For now, let's talk about exactly the problem itself. I want to know about the mm -hmm. root of the problem. What right. are the biggest factors that contribute to um, these cases, to child trafficking and child exploitation, based on your observation? Um, so I would probably start off by really saying up front that human trafficking is a very multifaceted issue, more so than people realize. When we talk about the root causes of child trafficking, we'll probably, most people just probably think education, lack of education, or, you know, poverty, which is genuinely like two of the biggest contributors to child trafficking. And, but we kind of forget that there are other underlying issues as well. And something that I talk a lot about is really gender discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so I guess we should probably take a step back first and talk about economic issues. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the cases that we deal with, most if not all, are cases in which the girls come from low socioeconomic backgrounds mm -hmm. and they are either A, sold by their family or B, went out looking for work when they were underage. And because there's no you know, viable work opportunities, of course, for kids who are under 18 years old, then you know they can they're stuck doing jobs that are exploitative right that exploit them for their labor mm -hmm. and so because they don't know their rights it's a big problem other than that we see um lack of education you know they don't know how they don't they can't find jobs a lot of the kids we work with because they've been exploited at such a young age they come in at like i would say 13 14 years old and they can't even write their ABCs because they never got to go through that formal education because they've been working from such a young age and then they were exploited. So a lot of the kids who are exploited, they really, they, you know, they weren't stolen in the middle of the night. Usually they have a background of having to be work that their parents forced them to work or, um, you know, they were sold by their parents at a young age. And so they've been working since they were kids and then they became vulnerable to being trafficked and then were trafficked. So even before being trafficked, it was already an issue. Now, then we get into like these more specific issues of like, for example, false identification, right? In Indonesia, a lot of children don't have um, birth certificates, which prohibits them from going to school, which prohibits them from getting a job. And, you know, actually under, the, under um, yeah, under President uh, Jokowi, since I want, yeah, since 2014, more children have gotten birth certificates, but even then they're still, you know, hidden children. And because they don't have birth certificates, they don't have the rights that Indonesian people have because they're not an Indonesian citizen, right? Yeah. Um, we see a lot of problems where, for example, if an area is going to, what's digusur in English? Like moved, right? They're being yeah. moved, they're being forced to move out of their area for some, the government to build something or a company to build something, exactly. right? Yeah. And so they say, okay, if you move out, we'll pay you guys this much money. Mm -hmm. But that's only valid for people who have an identification. Most of these people don't. And so when these, when things like, when situations like these happen and they're forced to move out, they're put in this more vulnerable position and they're forced to sell either their children or themselves. So then we have that, right? Issues of identification, access to resources, access to education. Then we, we get into gender, which is, I know it's, you know, people kind of want to think like, you know, gender is its own issue, if you will. 
But Ruafes handled so many cases where the kids were trafficked as a result of, you know, inherent um, sexism within their family. So, for example, we had a case where we had a girl who was trafficked and we found out, you know, she told us she had an older sister and a younger brother. And the older sister had been trafficked and she had as well. So we looked for the older sister, the younger brother and the family. The older sister, um, unfortunately, we could not find. And we are, you know, we, you know, we did our best, but we really, we couldn't find her. But we did find the family and the younger brother. And what we learned was that the family had sold the two girls so that the son could go to school. Right, and so now we see how complicated this issue is because when people talk to me about child trafficking, they seem to think everybody who, you know, everybody who's involved in trafficking, you know, the parents are evil, evil people, or at least, even if they, at least, you know, they don't understand how complex the issue is, that they think, oh, the parents don't understand that education is the key. They should have just sent all the kids to school. But those, these parents understood that, right? These parents understood that education was important, but they could only afford to, care for one one child and they could only afford to send one child to school now they had three children the question was which child was going to have that opportunity and because of our you know our community we kind of we do see men as um more i don't know more likely to succeed if you will then they chose the son to go to school instead right so when we talk about child trafficking we do have to talk about all these underlying issues all these problems that really do contribute to it because child trafficking in itself is is caused by so many different things that have to be handled before we even start the conversation about it. I see. Well, I think from, I mean, there are, of course, you say it's multifaceted and there are lots of reasons, but I think it all goes back to um, their socioeconomic background, right? Yeah. Basically, um, lack thereof. So, I th- I mean, I'm curious with the ongoing pandemic and, you know, the impact that it has on the economy, um, lots of, you know, worsening situations, what has been the impact in these cases? Yeah. So, sorry, I'm going to be looking down a bit because I have my notes here. But um, so we've seen like, we've seen victims face increased pressure and violence from their perpetrators because they're indoors all the time. And they have no escape. They have even less of a chance to reach out to people, to call helplines, or to go to a police station because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Furthermore, those who are still working, you know, they don't have access to the hygiene um, tools that we have. So they'd be working without face masks, without, you know, gloves, and they are usually in close contact with other people. Because, so a lot of the people who work in human trafficking, you know, they work in the streets, right but now we've seen a rise of indoor work because they can't work in the streets anymore so for example rooms that were initially housing like two girls now have like four to five girls inside of them which is not hygienic and people are coming in and out of those rooms repeatedly um yeah and other than that we've seen so we've seen child pornography rates go up by child pornography rates in general are extremely disturbing but it's even more disturbing now Unfortunately, there's no statistics here in Indonesia, but we know that in EU member states, there have been there has been an increase of 30%, I want to say. I didn't write it down, but 30%. Um, there has been increased cases of child exploitation, online child exploitation. Um, and 
it's, it's really, really hard for a lot of these people to find help because even if they can get the word out, organizations aren't so sure how to, how to, you know, go about the rescue process. So for example, in Rumafe, as much as we don't do rescue, we have had some COVID, some trafficking victim referrals during this pandemic. And luckily enough, we've been, you know, it's been great that we could accept some, but unfortunately because of COVID-19, we have to do the rapid test. We have to just make sure that the girls are safe inside our safe house and we can't afford our team members and our kids to go in and out of the safe house all the time. So then we also see the impact on the recovery process of the kids because even though they're supposed to be recovering and slowly going out into the world, they're cooped up once again. Um, and then from there, I think I would, I would probably also want to shift the conversation a little bit more to the future. Post-COVID is probably going to increase the level of human trafficking because right now we see, I would say we see a, we see a decrease in trafficking, the actual, you know, the actual movement of people to be exploited just because of travel restrictions. But exactly. But because of the economic impact of COVID-19, a lot of these families who at one point could eat at least one meal a day, you know, they really don't have any more savings. They don't have any more options. They can't feed an extra mouth. And so I know not only Rumafe, but a lot of other or you know anti-trafficking organization, children's rights organizations, they're very, very concerned about how COVID you know, is going to impact trafficking rates after it dies down, right? We were projecting increased trafficking rates, increased child marriage rates, especially um, just because of, you know, the, their economic needs. We've been talking about the issue. We've been talking about the victim's conditions. Now I want to really uncover um, and talk about the perpetrators themselves. You know, I th you've, yeah. you've, been, you've been in this for many many years right um seven years yeah almost seven seven in october yeah and so i mean you've obviously have seen a lot um have you ever come across or dealt with you know any of these perpetrators who are they really i mean who are the perpetrators and who helps um helps these uh cases um the accomplices that you know can you give us a first-hand account and talk about that yeah, well, perpetrators come in all shapes and shapes and forms. It's kind of distressing, actually, how varied the perpetrators are in every case. Mm -hmm. You know, on one hand, I think it's it's important to note that in different types of cases, we see different perpetrators. So, for example, when you talk about child trafficking, usually the people doing the trafficking, it's trafficking is a very systematic um, issue. Kids who are stuck in trafficking cycles are usually being trafficked by bigger crime syndicates, right? Who are, you know, moving these kids between borders, who have contacts in other locations. And so at the end of the day, they have very powerful contacts as well, right? We see, you know, I, I can quote that like public officials willfully ignore, facilitate, or engage, engage in trafficking crimes. Um, there are high rates of, you know, corruption on a local level because these crime syndicates are just so, so powerful. Rumafe once had the, I don't, wanna, I don't know what to call it, the opportunity, the, the, we were once in a situation where we caught, um, or we were involved in the legal process of one of the more powerful people in a trafficking syndicate. Mm -hmm. And he was only put away for less than six months, I wanna say two, three months. 
Um, and he was very proud. He had, you know, all the evidence pointed towards him, but he was just powerful, you know? Um, trafficking is just so systematic and the perpetrators are unfortunately relatively powerful in the places that they live in, not only in a you know, governmental sense, but also in the sense that they have the power to threaten the people who threaten them. That's why I don't want phase you know, safe house is a safe house and not a shelter because the kids that we serve are still going through the legal process and people are looking for them. So I've had one of my team members uh, followed and threatened because of our involvement in one of the cases that, in one of, you know, one of the cases that apparently uh, could have put his friend in jail. And so, you know, we see that it's a lot of the perpetrators are people who are powerful, who benefit financially, and who have connections not only within a local governmental level, but also on the level that they can threaten people, right? Yeah, yeah. Other than that, we could, then we could kind of, again, switch gears to looking at perpetrators of exploitation. And this is, then when I kind of talk about exploitation, I kind of talk also a little bit about, you know, a precursor, precursor, is that the word, a pre-happening to um, trafficking, right? Because a lot of times children are exploited and then trafficked by their family members as well. Mm -hmm. And so usually the perpetrators of this kind of crime are family members. It's the people closest to them. In fact, I would say um, the majority of the cases that Uwanfe handles, the perpetrators are family members. In terms of cases of sexual exploitation and sexual abuse, it's usually a father figure of some sort, whether that's the biological father or a stepfather or an, a, you know, a father figure from outside of the family. And there we see cases of girls being, you know, unfortunately victims of rape at the hands of their own father. And it's so hard because we come from this very patriarchal culture that really emphasizes respecting your parents above all else. And of course we have, of course we have to respect our parents, but sometimes we don't, we don't clearly draw the line between what is accepted and what is very much not, you know, okay at all. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we talk about perpetrators, yes, they come in all shapes and forms, but really while we can talk about these crime syndicates, most of the cases that Uwafe handles, the perpetrators are the people closest to them, down to the fact that, down to the um, cases where we have kids being trafficked by their own friends or being exploited by their own friends online. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a lot of cases of that as well. That said, a lot of the perpetrators of child trafficking or human trafficking in general is actually women who are recruiting the kids because oh. they usually they used to be victims of trafficking themselves. Mm -hmm. And this is either, you know, it's a, we could go into it more, but it's either them trying to, you know, take back what's theirs. It's them because they're bitter. And it's, you know, they all have different reasonings, but because that's just the path, right? That's like, they, they kind of realize, look, I'm in this position. All I can do is just, you know, move up within this, this, um, even uh, this path really. So perpetrators, they really do come in all shapes and forms. Um, but if I could emphasize just the one sort, it's just people who, who are the closest to the victim. Yeah. Regardless, um, in order to help the issue or and help the victims, would to, to be to bring 
these perpetrators to justice. And for that, we need a rigorous law in place, right? I mean, we do have um, our constitution, for example, um, Article 28B of our constitution demands protection of children's rights. We also have the Children Protection Act um, in -hmm. law 23, 2002. 2002, 2014, amended 2014. Exactly, and we have the human trafficking law itself, 21, 2007, and of course, the criminal code. Um, but criminal code. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is, that is, that is, um, another whole conversation. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Too much. Exactly. But, um, what I'm really curious about is what you think, you know, from your experience in dealing with the victims, you know, do these prevailing laws and regulation actually sufficiently address the issue or do you also believe that there are still many gaps or um, lacuna in the law um, when, when, when it comes to this issue? Like what is missing exactly? Yeah, so I think when we talk about this, we really do talk about like two different, in terms of like the wording and the law itself and then about the implementation, right? In terms of the laws itself, I, <laughs> I okay, they can be considered sufficient right in terms of like the punishment so this is you know this is a law that i always this is the article that i always remember from the um i want to say the child protection law um our clause 80 you know, i wrote it down why am i trying to remember it clause 83 it's that to any child who is trafficked stolen or um trafficked or stolen to be sold can face 3 to 15 years of jail or have to pay a fine of 60 to 300 million right and that in itself, and if we just look at the punishment, that's, you know, that's a different, that's fine. We can consider that sufficient. But the, the, about the 2023, 2002, amended 2014, it doesn't actually explain what the child is sold for. Like, it doesn't have a clear guideline um, that explains child, that differentiates between commercial, like child sexual exploitation, mm-hmm. child labor. And, you know, it, and because of that, I think there are, I would even call them like, just based on experience, really not necessarily, you know, education, it really is, it really becomes a loophole because then you're just thinking like, oh, you know, they're sold, but you can say, oh, they're sold for cultural reasons. My friend wanted a baby. So I had this baby and I sold it to her, but this baby was obviously sold to become a domestic worker, for example right so i think it's just it's it's articles like these where the wording is kind of awkward even i maybe if we just say awkward that it reflects really badly on how our government deals with cases of child trafficking and child abuse um then we go into the implementation of it that's even worse i would say you know, Rumafe has, since we started our Safe House, 2000, so we started our Safe House in 2016, which means we've been doing it for almost four years now, mm-hmm. uh, I think four in September, and over the past four years that we've done, we've done, we've helped victims through the legal process, we've never had a victim receive compensation from the court or from the perpetrator, so ever, four years, we've never gotten that, Rumafe has given them, you know, financial support on our own and we would still do that if they got compensation but they haven't got any type of compensation ever um and most of the people that 
you know, we bring to court, they get the minimum sentence. And even when they get the minimum sentence, they stand to be released early, right? So they get, let's say, three years already, and then a year later, we hear that he's free. It's, it's a big problem as well when, and this, is, this kind of goes a bit away from the, the system itself, but it, it does, we do have to have this conversation. We have a lot of cases of, because of victim blaming, right? Yeah. So we would need, so if there's a case where a child was being sexually abused by her father, for example, we would need um, her to testify and we would need her mother or another family member in the household to testify as well. Because there's no way, especially, you know, in their living conditions, there were no, there was no way that they could have not known, right? But the mother won't testify. And this has happened in two or three cases of ours. The mother won't testify because the father is a primary breadwinner and the mother has multiple children. So she doesn't want to risk losing the husband um, because the, the, the daughter was sexually abused. So then because of these gaps that we don't, you know, we don't really afford children the same voice in court, just not, not legally, just in terms of bias, I would say. Children just don't, ha- their, their words just don't carry the same weight. And so we've had cases where despite evidence, the girls are just assumed like, oh, you know, you're, you're overdoing it, right? Your father just did this. And then the worst part is where we've had one case where the, the, one of the, you know, one of the people who were in the court said, Tapi kamu masih sayang papa kan? As in, you still you still love your father, right? And so then we just see that this is when we talk about these laws, we also have to talk about the people who are enacting them, right? Because that yeah. go, falls under implementation, really. Yeah. And yeah. so it's not just talking about oh they don't give the criminals the the time that they should get, but it's also that they don't really understand the case in itself. And we just go into the fact that most of the agencies handling victims of trafficking don't have the training, aren't equipped with the skills they need to be frontline defenders of children's rights. Mm-hmm. So that includes the police department, that includes, um, you know, places where, places to take care of victims. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, NGOs like Rumorfe have to do a lot of, the, and like, I will say there are incredible individuals who are working in these areas and they do want to help but because they're not equipped with the skills by the central government then they can't help right so it's just even if they mean well it doesn't so we had one you know we had one happening where a police so this is just like a small small example where a police a a police officer would be interviewing the girl and now we take over that process but a police officer would be interviewing this girl who's let's say 13 12 13 years old right and she has been sexually exploited and sexually trafficked uh trafficked for sexual purposes and the police officer would call this girl sayang or cantik or what's that mean? Like my dear and beautiful, which is, you know, in Indonesian culture, that's, that's not creepy. It's quite, you know, like by an older, it's usually like, oh, it's from your, it's, it's not creepy, right? But because this girl has been sexually exploited, this is a stranger. He's a man who is in, there's a very clear power imbalance in the situation that she can sense. He's wearing a uniform and he's, he's a man who's older than her. And those are just, you know, like triggers are going into her brain. She's like, she can't understand what he's saying. And so then even though this police officer means well, he clearly cannot handle the case well. Mm -hmm. Right. So then we just, you know, it's just a problem that although we can say, okay, fine, maybe the law is sufficient. 
we can implement it well, but we're just not equipping people with the skills that they need. And it's really, it's the impact of that is really, really disappointing. I see. Well, from what you've um, explained there, um, I know I, I caught um, the implementation, of course, but in the implementation, I caught two very important points. The fact that their legal process, their um, evidence, evidentiary process, and um, how there is a lack of training in how government authorities, like the police, are handling their cases insensitively. Um, I'd like to just, you know, kind of put it out there that um, the RUPKS, uh, the bill to eradicate um, sexual violence or sexual abuse, um, it actually addresses these issues. I think um, for the legal process uh, in the evidentiary, it, it talks about how to um, process these cases in court um, and it talks about evidence. And right. one of them is the fact that in, for cases um, of sexual violence and sexual abuse, um, a victim's testimony is um, acceptable and it can be sufficient with one other evidence and that can be medical reports um psychological reports you know so so this would sufficiently um address the issue that um another testimony another person's testimony would be required and the second point that you mentioned was uh, the training um of these uh police officers. law enforcement law enforcement yeah. exactly and how they should be handling it and you know this is actually also addressed in the ROPKS. So um, the ROPKS actually um, urges the training and education of government authorities, law enforcement, on their handling of um, sexual violence, sexual abuse cases. Um, and in fact, it actually provides that the law enforcement, the police, is prohibited from um, degrading, stigmatizing, and um, these victims. So I'd like to just put it out there again that um, these gaps that you're talking about and to our listeners be fulfilled. can be fulfilled if only by some miracle and you know by our continued um, activism, participation and voice that the Eropekas would be passed and we would have that in the law. Well, we've covered um, talking about the issue itself. We've uncovered what is going on here in Indonesia. We talked about the victims, the situation, predicament that they're in. We talked about the perpetrators, the law, um, the implementation thereof. Uh, my next question is, what can we do to help fight this? I would, I would say that, um, you know, it's just kind of back to what I mentioned earlier about the three things, about first of all, being able to identify Second of all, researching how to contact. And third of all, researching organizations to help you through the process. A key thing to remember, a key thing to remember here is that you're going to be involving a lot of other things in working for child protection or for anti-trafficking. It doesn't just mean saying, hey, I don't think child trafficking will happen again. But, you know, having that mindset in encountering other issues, other social issues, Right. It doesn't have to be that you're preventing child trafficking directly, but working in sectors of increasing the quality of education or making sure education is more accessible. Those are things that 
very much contribute to the decrease of child trafficking. Talking about, you know, legislation, proposed legislation such as Erupeka S, that does mean a lot and that does have an impact. I think something that we saw, and this kind of goes a little bit away from like specifically child trafficking, but it is something that I have to say because we don't talk about it enough is just, you know, um, you see a lot of people say like, I hate Indonesia, right? I'm so tired of this dip. And I understand the sentiment, um, but I have to say that I can't share it. You know, we not, as much as you're allowed to be tired of this, you're not allowed. Well, you, I can't like disallow you from doing anything, but I would beg you even not to give up, right? Because these the people that you have to think about is the people who have been cheated, who have been cheated out of justice by this government. And that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, like hate them and try to dismantle them, but it does mean that you have to um, show that you want better. Because once you start saying that you hate them or you're tired of them, then you're not doing anything, right? Then you're not, if you've given up, then you don't want anything better. And so I just, for me personally, I think what it means is to just put your skin in the game, right? To, to be aware, to be engaged in a lot of issues, not just child trafficking, because again, there's a lot of other issues that contribute to it that sometimes we don't think about and that we have to, you know, have a voice in. Uh, but yeah, if we then talk about like child trafficking specifically, it's just those three things. I just understand how to identify, research how to contact your local hotline or a law enforcement agency and third of all research local organizations that can help you through the process whether that's legally or giving you counseling or giving you advice yeah that's it yeah that, that's really great um i think for our listeners um we will i mean i will include these um local hotlines and organizations um in the our instagram so you can have these numbers um Faye, you'll help me out for that? Yes, I will. No problem. That information. And also, we'll also put um, Ruma Faye in Batam. Right? You have the, hot, the hotline there for the safe house. Um, so, yeah, I think these are the what we can do. Um, and you're absolutely right. I think um, a lot of people, when they hear something about you know, the government, um, they would you know sometimes feel not hopeless but kind of just um pasrah. Pasrah. yeah exactly pasrah. they they give up they're like oh what else can we do but the thing is you guys there is a lot that you can do without you know disregarding the government um besides what um Faye is saying you could actually also um become a voice in who gets elected into office, who is in the government, right? Um, as citizens, as responsible citizens, we need to identify the issue and we need to elect and put people with strong integrity and core values into office as our representatives. People that um, won't be easy to target with threats and bribes. So we need to identify who these people are and elect them. So if you are kind of disappointed with what's going on today with our government, instead of just getting angry about it, there are lots of things that you can do to ensure um, the next term or even until for now. Like we have um, the ones that we're representing, you could always 
come to them, research them, who's representing your area, talk to them, you know, with, with a group of people, bring in a group of people, bring in your research materials, talk to them. Why are they not doing something about these issues? Yeah. Bring it, right? So, I mean, we are all in this together. We're all citizens. We need to, we all have um, voters' rights. We all have our citizens' rights. So we need to leverage this. We need to be assertive, apply pressure to the yeah. elected officials, um, elected locally, your officials, your representatives. Just say, you know, here's what we want. We want this cleaned up. And, you know, this would, you know, hopefully open up their eyes and hopefully they are, they have, they share the same values and moral backbone. So they will definitely help. And that is um, what we can do instead of, getting angry so that is a really good point Faye. Yeah, yeah it's just something really important that people need to remember I think because it's so easy to give up and truthfully like I feel the same I sometimes I just want to say it but I just we have I, those days we all have those days yeah yeah and like Bayangin you know after seven years right almost seven years of dealing with these people <laughs> you can man if I haven't quit you're not allowed to quit either no. exactly. but there are other but that is true. But that is true. I mean, you've um, you're 18 years old now, right? So, so you started this when you were seven years ago, when you were 11, then, right? I mean, when you were 11, you started this. You went through with it. You worked hard on it. So, so there's really no um, excuse for us not to do the bare minimum. You've done all of this. Um, you know, it's definitely inspired me, and hopefully, also inspires all of our listeners as well to actually take more initiative, right? To more activism, public participation, this youth activism. Um, I gotta say, you are a wonderful um, inspiration for all of this, right? And so um, really, really thankful and I'm really, really glad that you um, agreed to be on, the, on this podcast and talk to our listeners so um, hopefully we can all um, you know learn from you can you give a message tips to anyone I mean for someone who you know don't know exactly what issue they're passionate about or they already know it what should be their first step um, talk about maybe your experience when you started Rumafe in the first place I think when we talk about, well, first of all, maybe we're talking a little bit more about finding it. It's just to always want to listen, to always be observant and not only about, because I think the problem is sometimes we, we see one issue and we refuse, because I always talk about like multifaceted issues, like just how multi-layered, you know, a lot of these issues are that we see poverty and we don't like, we think, okay, poverty, that's the big issue. That's the one I should focus on. But then we could actually focus on like these smaller issues that really could use our like lend a hand. I think um, in terms of finding what you care about, you know, what you're called to do, if you will, it's just really to be observant, you know, mm -hmm. to go out of your comfort zone, to mm -hmm. don't be afraid to test things out, you know, like be a volunteer at other NGOs. And remember that when you want to make a change, if you're passionate about something, it doesn't mean that you have to start something of your own, right? It doesn't mean that you have to start a movement. A, yeah. Instagram page an infographic Instagram page it doesn't mean that you have to become this like amazing activist or anything but it can mean that you contribute to an already existing 
organization. I think, honestly, I think that's far more important, really empowering local communities that are already working rather than creating something on your own and potentially disrupting this community empowerment that's already been happening. So I think for first of all, it's just that, it's just be observant. Now, second of all, if you have found it, what I would say worked the most for me was just, and I think this, it also helped because I was 11, you know, I, I thought that I was king of the, queen of the world, like king of the world, really, um, that everybody cared who I was. I was nobody, um, but I wrote, so when I first started, I think I started being interested when I was about nine and between nine and 11 years old, I would say that I sent almost 100, almost, yeah, or like about, or maybe I'm over-exaggerating because it's in the past, but I would, I will say almost 100 letters, handwritten letters to organizations, to ministries, to activists, to even like actors and actresses who worked in the anti-trafficking sector, who did like anti-trafficking work. And I just asked to meet with them and I asked to, you know, learn more about their work and how I could contribute. Not many of them replied, but the ones who did reply were so kind, right? Well, we had like, other than the rejections, the one who replied with actual letters to me, they let me see their programs. They let me meet up with them and have a cup of, well, they had coffee, I had like a juice box. And they just taught me about what they did and how I could get involved. Yeah. And I think for me personally, the first step is looking for connections, not necessarily, and just be clear, just be completely upfront and say, look, I, I just want to learn from you. Sometimes that doesn't work. Yeah, truly. Sometimes people just think, look, I, I don't have time for that. And that's completely fair. But other times you're going to get connections to people who really do want to help you out um, yeah. and like facilitate your learning. So I think that's something I was really lucky about as a kid, you know, even my mom was the one who was like, okay, you should do handwritten letters. But even she was like, why are you <laughs> making letters? Like, I don't think they're going to reply. Um, she, but she was the one who was like, handwritten letters are the best way they reply. And she was completely right. Yeah. But it's just that as a kid, you know, I think you, you assume you're more important than you are when you're like a little kid as opposed to a teenager. And so that's, I think that's what 11 year old Faye would say to everyone is just keep knocking on doors, keep asking questions, be curious because really action has to be based off of your knowledge. Right. So I think that's the first, that's the first step that you should take. Use Google and then go out there, send emails, write letters, call people um, and keep doing it. Keep going for it. Yeah, that is really wonderful. I mean, um, back then you were using you know, handwritten letters, but now um, I think back then, seven years ago, we didn't have as much like, social media ways to interact with others. Yeah. Um, okay. so with all these technological advancement, you guys, you can really utilize it. You know, it's, it's there's so many ways to connect with people. There's Instagram DMs, um, there's emails. So, so yeah, we can definitely use that to our advantage yeah yeah and I just have to put this out there that so something that I'm very passionate about as well is just like youth empowerment mm -hmm. something that I look back on and I'm disappointed in I guess was just now I think I see a lot more like youth activism pages popping up youth activists starting out and it makes me it makes me so happy because mm -hmm. I can't believe like how not easy I would say but how much easier it is right because yeah. when I first started at least there weren't as many especially like on an international level we didn't see that many either and locally it was just starting out you know it wasn't as big um Malala was really who sparked the fire in me who made me realize I could do something but something I did realize that despite encouraging people to be youth activists we're not mm -hmm. equipping them with the skills they need and I this is something I always say like we're not equipping people with skills because 
we're not, you know, on like the law enforcement level and also for kids who we put so much pressure on them to be activists for to do something, but we're not giving them the skills that they need, you know. So for example, I think we I think we talked about this briefly before, but um for example, if you want to apply for grants, right, you start something, you need to learn how to write a budget, you need to learn how to write a proposal. And then if you do get the grant, if your budget and proposal are beautiful, you have to learn how to write a narrative midterm report, and then you have to write a financial midterm report, and then a final of those, those reports. And even after that, the organ, the company organization or the grant, you know, the grant the granting foundation will probably ask for more things from you that maybe you're not prepared to do because you were never taught to do these things. A lot of kids don't even know how to write proper emails to invite for collaborations. And it's, it's really disappointing, I think, because those are really basic skills that you need, but are not given to. So something I do, and this is something I, you know, I'm not that big of an activist. I would say I'm not quite like super well known, but something I try to make myself as available as possible because of that. So I always, you know, I have my email um, on my Instagram bio and I make it really clear that, or I try to make it really clear that yes, you can insert, you can, you know, please send me invitations through email, but also if there are any youth activists who want to reach out to me through email, um, you're really welcome to do so. And I've had a couple, you know, come and talk, like email and just say, hey, um, just like one sentence email, but just say like, I want to start this. How can, you know, what should I do? And I might not be the best person they ask because for example, they're asking something about tech, but I'll connect them, you know, to somebody who I know is working in that sector because, um, and it's something small. It's not, I can't promise that I can help everybody, but um, I try to make myself as available as possible just because that's something I didn't get when I first started. And I want that for a lot of the newer youth activists that are coming up that are really bright, that have so much, so much potential. And I want to, you know, be as supportive as possible. That is really wonderful. Thank you so much, Faye, for, um, for, for that really kind, wonderful message. I've, um, oh, speaking of, um, Faye also has a page, right, called What is Up oh. in India. Yes, so she, so she um, uh, summarizes all of these really important um, laws, such as what we do um, in Uncovering Indonesia. We, we talk about it. But um, if you're a visual and you want to read it, visual person, um, you know, you can check it out at what is up in Indonesia, right? Yeah. And, you know, we do basic translations. We want this to be foundational knowledge so you guys can continue to learn more about it. So I would suggest going there, reading up, understanding, and then listening to Uncovering Indonesia and then going straight to Google and continuing, you know, so this is, there are steps. You know? <laughs> so start with what is up in Indonesia, go to Uncover Indonesia, and then go <laughs> ham. <laughs> that is really cool about um, collaboration we have there. That is a good idea. <laughs> because you're the, you're the one with the background, right? We're just, the only background that we have. So what is up in Indonesia is a, uh, is a you know, is a partner work between me and Abby from Lalita Project. And, um, you know, the only credentials we have is that we're bilingual that's, that's really it um so then you guys can read that and then the next thing you can do is get it from the lawyer her, the lawyers herself and the lawyer in Kakalista uh, is still is about studying right uh she, she's a i think she, she just graduated recently so she's a law graduate yeah yeah so we have a law grad we have a lawyer and you guys can continue from there so so i'm really glad you're doing this um, Faye, and of course, Faye, you are I'm truly a wonderful inspiration for us all. Oh, no.
though, you, okay, I have to tell the listeners, I don't know if you're going to keep this in, but we, so you and I, we had an initial call, right? That stretched to like three hours, I think, because you're so cool. We're both, I'm like so happy to be talking to you because this is, this is a really good, yeah, it's not an interview though, right? It's like a conversation and it's something that I've learned from it as well. And I learned from, oh, that three hour call that we had, I learned so much from you. So you are, what's that in English? Role model? <laughs> no, but that's funny because hey, you are like my role model. Like I'm like a fan of you as well. So it's amazing. You're like, I wish I was as cool as you when I was younger. I'm like, what did I do when I was younger? <laughs> so so I'm glad. I'm glad um, we're able to like learn from one another. And yeah, hopefully um, everyone also does that, you know, talk with other people. I swear, I promise you. Whoever you talk to, you'll definitely learn something new, yeah. right? So, and if you do have the same passion, the same concern, it could totally help you guys grow together and you can actually make a lot of difference and be a wonderful contribution to society. Like Faye. Oh, like you. <laughs> Excuse me. Like Karina, Brunisi. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Faye. Um, all these information, wonderful, wonderful insights from Faye. Um, as always, we will post them in our IG. So look out for that. And yeah, thank you all so much. Bye. Bye.